Weirdo Weirdo Bookworms Unite! Unite. Do your reading tastes range from dystopian sci-fi to middle-grade fantasy? Dark psychological thrillers to gory body horror? From YA paranormal swords and sorcery? Extraterrestrials? Murder? Mayhem! And beyond! Then we want to share our love of reading with you! Welcome home. Hey, genre junkies. It's Sandra. And this is Scott. And this is an extra, very especially special episode tonight. (laughs) They're always special episodes. They're Um, always special, but this got even more special. Yeah, extra is definitely the word. You're going to uh, maybe hear a little bit of an extra Scott (laughs) this Um, week. Well, first of all, it's Scott's birthday week, so that's very exciting. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to you. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, we got the opportunity to read this book, but uh, even if it wasn't something that was already slated, I would have picked this as my birthday book anyway. There you have it. This is his birthday pick, and tonight we are talking about Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, his newest work. Andy Weir, author of The Martian and Artemis, and now this book. And as you may remember, The Martian was one of my favorite books of all time when we read it. Uh, well, we didn't actually read it for review. Oh, you're right. We didn't. Okay. Well, The that Martian was so long ago. was one of my favorite books of all time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I was very excited to keep reading Andy Weir. And here we are. Yeah, we did review Artemis and we talked about that way back when and very excited to talk about this novel and talk to Andy. And of course, all the spoilery stuff is going to be after the break. So you can stick around till then if you haven't read the book yet, which it's like just coming out. So wouldn't be surprised if you haven't quite finished it. Um, Scott, what else? What else has been going on? Um. <laughs> Just watching your garden grow, getting things in the ground. Yeah, basically, my my life these past few weeks has been revolving around our garden. Got lots of new sprouts in, uh, you know, just a whole lot of getting everything ready for the summer. And, you know, so we're just going to be, you know, buried in fresh produce. Yeah. And um, let's see, we talked about we finished The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Super excited for all the other Marvel and Star Wars shows coming to us very soon. Um, Let's see, I have a new episode of Spooky Slumber Party that's going to be out this Friday, where we talk about a movie that I just adore called The Loved Ones. So that's fun. And then, of course, you can find me over at The Cold Show. We talked about Creepshow 1 and 2 last week. Um, about how awesome one is and how awful two is. And hey, if you're listening uh, to this the week of May 4th, May 5th, mm-hmm. uh, you should check out the cult show live on Friday. Oh, why? Because I got to pick the film. <laughs> For your birthday. And I always pick good films. Uh, Death to Smoochie was a huge hit. But this time we are going to be discussing Stay Tuned which is one of my favorite films as a child. It's kind of obscure. It's a little bit obscure, but it's it's uh it it's got the late the great John Ritter in it and it's just so fantastic. So watch it and uh check us out and if you don't make it to the live show, of course it'll be on YouTube. Um, something else that's just interesting is for Producer Stitches, our local um, pet store that we like to frequent has started selling catnip rolled up to look like joints. <laughs> so we're very excited to give that to her. It's hilarious. It is very funny. We grow our own catnip, but Scott was like, oh my God, this is too much. He had to get it for her. 
And I think if she likes it, I might roll some up myself. <laughs> for her. For oh my her. God, wouldn't that be funny? We're like rolling <laughs> them up and giving them to all the neighborhood cats and people are like, this is weird. Yeah, this is not okay. This is weird. <laughs> okay, without further ado, let's talk about Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. Ryland Grace is the sole survivor on a desperate last chance mission, and if he fails, humanity and the Earth itself will perish. Except that right now, he doesn't know that. He can't even remember his own name, let alone the nature of his assignment or how to complete it. All he knows is that he's been asleep for a very, very long time, and he's just been awakened to find himself millions of miles from home, with nothing but two corpses for company. His crewmates are dead, his memories fuzzily returning. Ryland realizes is that an impossible task now confronts him. Hurtling through space on his tiny ship, it's up to him to puzzle out an impossible scientific mystery and conquer an extinction-level threat to our species. And with the clock ticking down and the nearest human being light years away, he's got to do it all alone. <laughs> um, so first of all, this book is blurbed by everyone. Brandon Sanderson, George R. R. Martin, Blake Crouch. I mean, this book is so already beloved and is receiving great reviews. It's already been optioned for a film, I think. Like it's already, or film or TV show, it's already being adapted for the screens. Um, so, and that comes as no surprise because Andy Weir is kind of a th he's kind of a thing he absolutely is he's a bankable name and for good reason yes so scott what'd you think for your birthday episode well yeah i don't think it's going to come as a surprise to anyone that this book was an absolute obsession to me but this book was more than an obsession. We don't have a category in our scoring you system. You broke the like Richter scale. It, it, it broke it. I so okay. Uh, a little peek behind the curtain. We finished this book a few weeks ago. Yeah, uh, and I have since read the book a second time. And I still pick it up every once in a while and just peek at little chapters and stuff because I love this book so very much can't stop won't stop i you know i i made i made a little comment at the beginning of this episode about oh martian is up there with my favorite books yeah this is i mean surpasses i don't surpasses martian surpass surpasses martian and this one legitimately is you know top maybe like top three kind of thing like yeah i would put this up there with some of my favorite feel-good books of all time he like really super loves it it's and amazing you, and you need to know this <laughs> um well obviously all of my praise is going to fall flat in the wake of <laughs> you being so enamored with this book but um it was an obsession for me too and i really loved it definitely my favorite thing he's written um absolutely brilliant not only brilliant, but so funny. You guys, I cannot stress how funny this book is. He's really good at writing a main character who's just a little bit, uh, j who just doesn't take everything completely seriously and pokes fun at, at themselves and at the, the situation right. in ways that's smart and witty and inventive. I always say when I talk about this book to people, I've been saying that it's like science, 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 funny joke. 
<laughs> um, so this is um, science fiction, but he does a really good job of putting in probable science and real science in this really nice blend. He explains things well. He's talking about really big, high concept stuff at times, but he still brings a lot of humor and a lot of explanation. So you never feel like you're not smart enough to keep up. What I find the most fun about his writing in general, uh, particularly with this and The Martian, is he starts with a problem, uh, and this, you know, small problems throughout the book and a bigger problem that's the main plot. And the way that he writes where he's just trying to solve problems is so much fun. Right. To me. It's 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 like watching a scientist at work. It's a lot of fun. And like he shows you how a scientist would solve these problems. Exactly. Is from uh, the point of view of somebody who's like really educated and knowledgeable in the subject that they're working with. Um, and then he takes it to really inventive, cool places. And he doesn't hold back on giving you good character stuff, too. Mm -hmm. It's not all just about the point, the plot, you know, the problem, it's like you actually care and are invested in the characters he gives you. And there's an interesting conceit that he gives in this book as well that, you know, is kind of explained in the um, in the synopsis. You know, the, he is the the main protagonist of this book, stranded, much like Watney was in The Martian. Mm. Uh but whereas the Martian switches between different viewpoints, this keeps that character development going and that storyline going it, with a conceit of him slowly remembering what has happened to him in his past. Right. It's almost a dual timeline. Exactly. Yes. Um, that, that keeps that character growth going. It's character growth that has happened in the past, yeah. but you're experiencing it in the present. And the problem that he's faced with, that humanity's faced with, is really scary. <laughs> it's a it really scary, high-stakes problem that's going to require a lot of sacrifice to solve. Um, and I, I have to say, not knowing the problem exactly going in, I think, was um, a good thing. And not knowing where the book was going to go... Once it starts rolling, I think is a really good thing. I mean, you know, obviously we're trying to be vague here, but because it's, um, there's some good twists, if you will. I don't want you to like know too much as, you know, a reader. I want you to discover it and be surprised. There are certain people who don't care about spoilers as much as totally. I do. Totally. Um, this is a book that even if you're someone who doesn't really mind spoilers, I, I cannot recommend enough go into this blind or as blind as possible. Mm -hmm. If you're someone who usually listens to our spoiler section and, and then picks up a book, I really recommend, even if it's something that normally is just your style, just pick it up and read it. If, if we've shown you, if, if we've Peak. piqued your interest yeah. at all, just go and read it. Um, you're not going to regret it because you're right. There are twists and turns and surprises in this book that, are are good even if you know that they're coming, but are really exciting if you don't. Um, so what would you say is the audience for this book since you are, I guess, now an expert on this book? 
I'm going to call this an, a mass appeal book mm-hmm. uh, without question. Yes. I think that there's a certain, uh, something I kind of want to say about uh, Project Hail Mary is in, in, you know, in contrast to The Martian, is The Martian is built on very real, 100% up and down, although some of it is a little bit accelerated science. Yeah. Whereas this does go more into the science, the classical science fiction, where there are there are ideas and concepts that are not currently possible uh, or or realistically, there's even a path to get there. Uh, and for that reason, if you're really looking for something that's completely real science, this might surprise you a little bit, but I think that that actually makes it a more of a mass appeal story than even The Martian was mm-hmm. because it has stuff for everyone. Yeah. Um, did I mention this book is funny? This book is hilarious. This book definitely had me laughing out loud a few times, plus many, many, many chortles um, and, and so on and giggles. <laughs> I definitely laughed and I really appreciate an author that can make me laugh like that. Um, you will also learn stuff. You will come out of this book a smarter person, <laughs> even with the probable science, the science fiction, if you will. There's still enough truth there that you're like oh okay oh yes i see that okay okay cool i I, yeah i'm with you like you will be um you will be smarter and this book also has heart as well so you you shall be warmed (laughs) in your heart (laughs) um i i agree i would say mass i would say some of the sciencey stuff might not appeal to some people but um I would say challenge yourself because you will come out of it better having read this book on so many levels. All right. If we haven't convinced you enough, you've got to read this darn book. Um, So here's some exciting news. Any spoilers from the interview are going to be tucked into the spoiler section, too. So if you're with us thus far, you still get to listen to the interview because all of the spoiler free part is going to come up right now. Hey, bookworm buddy. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review. And while you're at it, find us on Instagram at Genre Junkies. Author of tonight's book, Project Hail Mary, he put the science in science fiction. It's Andy Weir. (laughs) Hello. I like that. Hi, Andy. Welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. It is absolutely an honor to have you on our show. And we're so excited to talk about this book. Oh, well, I'm excited to... Haven't talked about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Speaking of which, um, how has this process been for you releasing a book during a global pandemic? Well, I had finished the writing before the pandemic started, or at least the first draft. Well, technically, I guess. So uh, I turned the first draft in in, in mid January. So they were having problems in in, in mid January of 2019. Um, mm. They were having problems in Wuhan at the time, but nowhere else. And then all the pandemic stuff played out after that. Uh, so really, it's just it was just sort of a dead year for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, this book has, uh, you know, shadows of what has gone on over the past year when it comes to people coming together for a common cause. Um, how has how that, that, you know, changed the way you've looked at this book that you've written and what does it mean for you? 
Well, it's one of those things where it was all, it's all just a coincidence. Right? <laughs> it's like, I mean, the writing, I, I didn't have, you know, the pandemic in mind when I wrote it because the pandemic wasn't happening. Right. Um, so it's all just a coincidence. But um, yeah, it's an interesting coincidence. I would rather have not had a global pandemic. <laughs> you know? Sure, sure. So, you know, if I had my druthers. <laughs> so how do you come up with your, your plots and your ideas uh, in the first place? Yeah, your inspiration. How do you do that? Well, it's interesting. Um, normally, my uh, my story ideas come from me just kind of daydreaming about what cool stuff could be happening in the future. So for The Martian, I was uh, it came about because I was thinking, how could we do uh, how could we do a humans to Mars mission? How could we put humans on Mars and return them safely to the Earth? Right. <laughs> and. I was I was saying okay how do we get them there how do we do this what could go wrong how do they respond if these things go wrong and then all the edge cases of well if this goes wrong and that goes wrong then what then I realized there was like a pretty cool like increasingly desperate things you'd have to do to stay alive and I'm like oh this could make a good story and so right. that's kind of where the Martian came from for Artemis it started off with me again not trying to come up with a story for a book or anything I was just thinking to myself what do you suppose what do I suppose humanity's first city that is not on earth is going to be like like for starters where will it be in orbit on the moon on Mars you know I decided the moon was probably most likely because in orbit it it takes a lot of it costs a lot to put stuff into orbit. So if you want to build a city in orbit, you have to put every gram of that entire city into orbit. Uh. Whereas on the moon, you can harvest local materials and build your city out of that. And so, you know, and I started thinking about, okay, how do you build the city? Why do you build the city? What's the tourism like there? Nobody just builds a city for no reason. That's why we haven't colonized Antarctica, right? I mean, and so, you know, I got to think about that. And that ultimately, I mean, I had worked out basically all about how Artemis itself as a city worked before I ever came up with a story to take place in it. Then I I grudgingly said, all right, well, I should have a story to happen in this book, (laughs) you know. And so that was neat. Project Hail Mary is a little bit different in that it it, kind of went the other way. After I wrote The Martian and before I wrote Artemis, I attempted to write a book called Zhek, Z-H-E-K. This was going to be my magnum opus. <laughs> this is what people were going to know me for. The Martian was going to be kind of like my The Hobbit. Right. But, you know, Zhek was going to be the big thing. It was my Game of Thrones. It was my Lord of the Rings. It was, you know, this epic science fiction saga, multi-book, lots of characters, lots of settings, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, um, so that's what I was working on after The Martian. You know, I, I had a book deal for it and everything. I got, I spent a year working on it and got about 70,000 words in, which is like, you know, The Martian is about 100,000 words for right. reference. So I got about 70,000 words in until I realized one day, oh, um, this sucks. Oh, oh no. Yeah, it, it wasn't any good. Uh, the, the, the plot was like, the plots were overcomplicated and, and there were too many plot lines going on. There were too many characters, and none of them were, or almost none of them were particularly interesting. Um, I was 70,000 words in, and I was still in the first act. So that oh. meant that, like, this was going to be this monstrous tome that no one wanted to read. And I'm like, you know, maybe I should get a few more novels under my belt before I do a useless, crappy ego project. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I think every writer gets there eventually, but it usually sure. takes 
time. So um, I decided, yeah, I said like, oh boy, I, I don't think this is working, guys. I told the publisher. And so they, they let me, thank God, let me, uh, they gave me an extra year to work and let me say, like, I, I was like, okay, I want to, I'm going to write this completely different book. And I wrote Artemis. So Jacques, it was painful, you know, to mm-hmm. just like take a book I'd worked on for a year and take it out to the to the sh- woodshed and shoot it, right? But it was unsalvageable. But anyway, um, there were a few what I thought were really cool concepts in the story. Didn't execute it well, but there were still some pretty neat things in that story. And I thought, like, man, and one of them was the idea of a a, a spacecraft fuel that basically does mass conversion and sends the uh, uh, it turns mass into energy in the form of light and uses that as propulsion and, uh, and that's a really cool like if we had that you could literally you could you could send a million kilogram spaceship to mars in a month it, with like you know a, a few hundred kilograms of fuel or something like that it's sure. it's seeing how efficient it is and and so i was like that that's a really cool concept and and then uh, so i got to thinking about that and then uh also there was one character in jack who was a, a woman who had this tremendous amount of secret authority nobody even knew she existed but she could pretty much just order anything she wanted like she could just do or say or arrange anything she wanted in you know when she was she was sort of a fixer problem solver and um and so i i co-opted both of those concepts so basically i used jack for parts <laughs> and um both of those concepts ultimately ended up in project hail mary yeah and it, it was neat it was fun with the speculation on on the fuel um, in in Jack, it was a technology. It was called black matter, and it was this mysterious substance that I never even bothered to explain any further. <laughs> it would absorb any electromagnetic radiation and turn it into mass, and that mass would be more black matter, and that's it. And, and if you, I think there was something you could do to trigger it to release that energy as light, and and that's it. There you go. There's your black matter. Um, but then I thought like. Oh, it'd be neat. You know, I, I was thinking of like, okay, I want to write a story that takes place modern day that isn't Jack, that um, where we have that technology. And I'm like, okay, so how do we get it? Well, in Jack, it was like this alien technology. And I'm like, well, what if it, you know, it, it's it's a thing that turns energy into more of itself. That sounds like a life form, right? That's what that's what we do. We turn food into people, right? <laughs> And True. some of us turn people into food, but you're not supposed to do that. It's frowned upon. It's very frowned upon. That's really sort of only one direction that works, um, or at least on a moral level. Um, and so so I was thinking of, okay, okay, so this is a thing that collects enormous amounts of energy and um, can fly through space. And I'm like, well, why does it fly through space and where is it getting all that energy? And those two questions kind of answered themselves. I said, oh, it, it's like an algae or a mold, like a single-celled organism, and it lives on the surface of stars. Mm. So it's, it collects energy from the star, and there's plenty to be had when you're on the surface of a star. And then it spores outward. It reproduces, and it also spreads out to other stars. And to do that, it needs to collect a huge amount of energy and then expel it as thrust, and it evolved this ability. 
And, and so I was like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. And I said, like, let's, let's say humans got a hold of that technology. That'd be pretty cool. We could breed it up in farms. We could, we could do all sorts of stuff. Ooh, we'd have to be really careful because if any of that got into our sun, that would be disaster. And I'm like, wait a minute, that would be a disaster. Disaster <laughs> where books come from. <laughs> I love it. So it's like you you kind of have this hypothesis and it just kind of grows from there. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, the woman who has like, uh, have you guys read it? I, oh, I don't know. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Strat. I didn't know who, I, I don't know who had, yeah, it's Strat is the the woman who has all the authority. Although Strat is even more powerful than the than the woman from uh, Jack because she, she only had like, total authority over American resources, whereas Strat pretty much has the whole world working for her. <laughs> yeah, it's, oh, it's amazing. Oh, such power. But she uses it, you know, she is ruthlessly determined and focused on her goal and nothing else. She yes. doesn't care about herself, doesn't care about you. Doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> I admire that in a lady. I really do. Or anyone, because it's like, look, they, Literally, the fate of humanity rests on the success of this mission. Yes. So she's like, I don't have time to screw around. I don't have time to worry about hurt feelings. And I would happily sacrifice thousands, maybe millions of human lives to make this happen because I've got billions of human lives that I'm trying to save, you know. Right. So you have an incredibly unique writing process when it comes to the way that you you build things off of science and just build into the story it, it takes pantsing to a totally different level <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't think we've had another author on the show that does quite like that yeah has that always been your writing process or or how I mean, does that yes it has been i wouldn't call it pantsing though i mean i i plan <laughs> things out you know i i i i basically if I don't like where the science is taking me, I, I go a different direction, but I always start with the science and work forward. And usually it's pretty interesting. The, the cool thing with real science is as long as you aren't breaking any laws of physics, as long as you say, this is how my, whatever strange kind of exception to the rules works or whatever, then you can just follow real science and see what happens as a result. And if you stick with real science and don't just make stuff up as you go along, uh, it will remain internally consistent because physical law is very internally consistent. <laughs> so you don't have to come up with all these solutions to edge cases. If you run into an edge case, think it through and you'll kind of see what can happen. And then sometimes that leads to interesting plots. <laughs> right. Were you always writing stories, even as a kid, or when did you? Yeah, was that kind of always part of just who you were? Yeah, I was. I was writing short stories when I was a kid. I mean, when I was a little little kid, I was writing uh, Henry Higgins fan fiction. Oh, love <laughs> it! What? I was like eight years old. Some Henry and Ribsy fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. I- <laughs> I, it, tell me that exists somewhere. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I think it's long gone now. Ah. I mean, that'd be like 40 some odd years old. And I think I did it on a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I've been writing the, my, my whole life pretty much. And when I was 18 and deciding, okay, I'm going to go to college. What do I want to do mm-hmm. for a living? I was kind of torn between going into software engineering because I liked it, I enjoyed it, and I was—I had learned a little bit about programming computers already, 
just as a nerd. And it was it was the late eighties, you know, so it was still just kind of starting. And then I thought like I, I could do that or I, I've I've also always wanted to be a writer, right? And I thought, well, between those two, I guess I I, I do want to be a writer, but I also really like regular meals. So <laughs> I'm gonna go for software engineering. And I really did like software engineering. I liked it a lot. So once The Martian went big, you know, I wrote that in my spare time. I was still a computer programmer, and I was a happy little cubicle dweller. I liked my job. I liked the people I worked with. I liked the team that I was on. And so I, I stayed there way longer than I needed to. Oh. <laughs> what is that like to see your characters, you know, transcend and people fall in love with them and even to the point where they want to make movies out of them? It's pretty cool. It all It was so surreal. Um, after a while, like when a bunch of really weird shit starts happening to you, after a while, you just kind of get numb to it. Right. it. It's weird. It's all very positive and it's all awesome. But after a while, you're just like, okay, this is what happens now. Like, I remember when I, you know, just not too long before The Martian, I used to tell people, you know what's funny? Everybody's got a story of how they met some famous person or, you know, something like that. And I would tell people, I think I'm I'm exceptional because I have never met a famous person. Like, <laughs> I was 40-something years old, and I was like, I have never so much as met or even seen across a room anyone who you would remotely call famous. <laughs> right? And then within a very short span, I was like, okay, now I'm in the green room with Matt Damon, <laughs> and we're going to get interviewed because because we're here at the Toronto Film Festival for the premiere of the movie they made out of my book. Right. Oh, and I'm in, um, yeah, yeah, I'm in, oh, oops, I'm in Kate Mara's chair. I need to move. <laughs> uh, yeah. What is life? That's crazy. I know. Jessica Chastain is really smart, by the way. <laughs> nice! Really? I'm glad to hear that. So, like, uh, I was so impressed. Like, um, so a premiere is just a whirlwind of events. It's like media events, interviews, the the premiere itself, um, and then, like, parties and, and schmoozes and shindigs and everything like that. Anyway, being, being the good boy that I am, I took my mom to the premiere. And, oh, and um, so... We did the premiere, and then after the premiere, there was like an after party, and we were all hanging out, and my mom was talking to Jessica Chastain, like, you know, like you do. See how quickly this becomes normal? <laughs> right? Yes! <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, she was chatting with Jessica Chastain about something, and they talked for a while, and then they both started talking to other people and whatever, and then time went by, and anyway, next day... Um, next day there's more events and more events and then another little kind of private party that Ridley Scott threw. He rented out um, a restaurant and just invited a subset of people, including me and my mom. And and um, there was Jessica Chastain and Jessica Chastain just like came up to my mom and just continued their conversation oh. like like they hadn't ever stopped it. Oh. And And it's like how many people has she talked to in that intervening time? It was something like 36 hours between those two events. And in that time, she must have done like, without exaggeration, probably like at least 100 interviews, talked to maybe 1,000 people at various things, and she just maintained context of a conversation she had with this one person. And I was like, wow. <laughs> That's really neat. I can't do 
that? <laughs> I can't remember what my wife told me five minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> so with, with all of the, the famous people that you have now met and now being a famous person yourself, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a Z-list celebrity. <laughs> Who, who, if you could sit down and have dinner with anyone living or in history, who, who would you sit down with? Well, um, presuming I don't get to send information back in time, like, sure. is that right? Sure. Yeah. I, I don't get to like have dinner with Lincoln and say, by the way, yeah. you, maybe skip you know, the show. Yeah. <laughs> right. Skip the show. Our American cousin, not as good a play as, as, as people have led you to believe. Yeah, it sucks, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I love that expression. Um, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how'd you like the play? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, presuming I can't send information back in time, boy, throughout all time, that's a, that's a big one. You know, uh, do I have a translator? Yes. Yes. Translator? I would go with Johannes Kepler. Love He's my, my favorite scientist He's my, he's my, he's my, he's my man. He's my boy. My, my boy, Joho. That's <laughs> what his friends call him. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. Yes. He worked out it. that planets move in ellipses. I love this guy. So he went, he was like, I think planets move in ellipses, not circles. And everyone's like, yeah, I, 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 I think your wife moves around my crotch. And, <laughs> and he's like, whatever. And so he says, <clears throat> he says, okay, I'm going to prove it. I need uh, detailed information on exactly where the planet Mars has been for the past like two and a half years, one full Martian orbit, one one full orbit. And all the sources he got showed it moving in a perfect circle. And the reason is because these are all astronomers who know who thought it should be moving in a perfect circle. So when they measured where it was, it, if it was slightly off, they'd just fudge it over to where they figured it should be, mm. right? And so all that data said it was a perfect circle. And he's like, no, I need data that isn't fudged. I need someone who wasn't expecting it to be anywhere and just wrote down where it was. And he found that in the form of Tycho Brahe, who is a Danish uh, gentleman astronomer. He was a wealthy dude who had his own observatory on his own property. And he just loved to do like observations, solar observations. He would go out and meticulously note where everything was in the sky. And he said like, Oh, that would be perfect. I just need to get Tycho Brahe's notes, all of his data on where Mars has been for the past in the sky for the past two and a half years. Then I can back calculate its position in 3D space, figure out the path it took, and see if it's actually an ellipse. And so he went, Hey, Tycho Brahe, um, can I have this data on Mars? And Tycho Brahe said, No, because he was <laughs> because he was an asshole. So this is the problem with Tycho Brahe is that he was just this insufferable prick. He was such a jackass. <laughs> and so, uh, but he would have parties and stuff like that. Um, it, anyway, um, so Kepler went to a party, a gathering at Brahe's house where he'd been invited and stuff like that and stole the data. <laughs> Love it. Get it. And so he stole the data and then went through and did like a ton of math and ultimately proved that planets move in ellipses. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, that's my man, Joho. <laughs> yes. And it makes a wonderful story, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, before we let you go, we always like to ask our authors, what are some books that you would like to recommend to our readers? Stuff you've you've, uh, read recently or some of your favorites? Well, let's start with classics. Um, Some of my favorite, uh, I grew up reading juvenile uh, uh, science fiction. That is books made in the 50s and 60s targeted at like, 13-year-old boys. Right, like stories for boys. Yeah, girls, but really targeted at boys. But, um, and so this is stuff by like Heinlein and Asimov and Clark. And so for the classics, uh, I definitely recommend, uh, I loved um, Tunnel in the Sky by Heinlein. I liked Red Planet also by Heinlein. And uh, uh, Starman Jones is a good one. The Rolling Stones. There's a bunch of Heinlein that's good. The earlier, the better. Later on, he turns into a dirty old creepy man yeah. with lots of weird sex stuff. So steer clear of that. <laughs> but um, yeah, as for Clark, I mean, he's famous for writing like 2001 and stuff like that. But I really liked Rama, R-A-M-A. That's a whole series. Only read the first one. Sorry, Arthur. Yeah. The other- Sorry, Art. The other ones suck. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then uh, finally, uh, by Asimov, who is my favorite author of all time, um, uh, the robots stuff, Caves of Steel, um, uh, Robots, Dawn, in the middle there, I think it's The Naked Sun, and that sort of stuff. I actually didn't like his Foundation books as much, which I think a lot of sci-fi dorks would call blasphemy, but... (laughs) Anyway, so those are the classics that I like. For more modern stuff, I really like um, – I, I love Blake Crouch's stuff. So oh, us too. So Recursion. I recommend Recursion and Dark Matter. Um, also uh, by, I think, Peter Kleins was The Fold. I liked that one a lot. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, what are some other things I've read recently. I don't read as much as I should now that I'm a writer. <laughs> it's kind of a busman's holiday, right? It's like, yeah. oh, I'm going to spend all day writing, and now I'm going to read. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, kind of been staring yeah. at words all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, that gives, that's good. Now people have some some more things to add to their endless uh, to be. I also pile. like, I like, uh, I like the Lady Astronaut series by Mary Robinette Kowal, I think, right? Robinette Kowal? Anyway, Kowal. K-O-W-A-L. She wrote uh, the Lady Astronaut series, which is a very interesting approach. It takes place in a alternate history where earth is struck by a massive asteroid it hits the ocean but struck by a massive asteroid some sometime around i want to say like 1959 or 1960 something like that Mm -hmm. and like history diverges from that point forward but she has this really historical view so it's it's basically the nasa of the 60s but they are desperate to colonize mars because they're this asteroid is, is ultimately leads to um, – it's an extinction-level event. It's just going to take a few generations. Um, and so they, they are now really eager to colonize Mars. And it's just interesting uh, – it's very interesting. And her main character is a woman. And, of course, there's like – you know, it's, it's 1960. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Uh, it has been, it, I mean, frankly, it's been a dream for me. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a very big fan. You have low standards. I <laughs> <say>. <laughs> 
and this is technically his birthday episode, which was unplanned. So look at this. Oh, very nice, very nice. Happy birthday! Yeah, it's like I, I, yeah. Wow, it's my dream to talk to Andy Weir. Ooh, boy, you need better dreams. Like so. <laughs> Well, it's like I, there's a running joke I have with my wife where sometimes she'll just tell me something mundane she's going to do. Like, she's like, you know what? I want to cook. And she gets up and heads to the fridge. And I'm like, dream big, honey. <laughs> exactly. I love it. You know, <laughs> thank you, though. Thank you so much. We just adore your books. And this one was probably my favorite thus far. And I, yeah, only go up from here. <laughs> Well, thank you. Hey, Bookworm Buddy, don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review. And while you're at it, find us on Instagram at Genre Junkies. Welcome back, Genre Junkies. It's the spoiler section. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I can't. I need to just talk about it. I okay. need to just talk about it. So again, final warning, if you haven't read the book, just read it first because yeah. large spoilers ahead. Right. Starting now. I love Rocky. I I don't want him to ever feel any pain. I would do just about anything to keep Rocky safe and happy. I cannot tell you <laughs> the amount of joy it gave me when Rocky came on the scene and with his little wave and how exciting that character is was and how much i fell just instantly in love with him with uh, them uh, 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 <laughs> we're gonna say him uh you know but i i know that's kind of like it's a little confusing with their <laughs> with how their species works they're very different than humans i was not expecting this story to go into this direction i was even even when he described seeing an alien craft outside of the window yeah i had already kind of made myself uh aware of the of the diagrams at the beginning of the book yeah that talked about the ship rotating around itself yeah and detaching and so in my head when he sees this i'm thinking to myself oh, it's the other side of the ship and he just doesn't remember how the ship works mm. and he's just seeing the 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 other side that's connected via cables and it's opened up without him knowing about it. Okay. And more and more stuff started happening. I'm like, wait, is is this is this actually an alien thing? Even when the robot came out, I'm like, oh, you know, it could be a right. robot that the humans created. Right. But then when the bridge started building. Yes. And then he and then when he was on the other side, I just I was like, I, I can't believe Andy Weir is bringing aliens onto the scene. Yeah. And uh, without a doubt, Rocky is my favorite yeah. alien friend. Like he is just he captures your heart. He captures it so incredibly. Um, I love, you know, their rudimentary way of starting to communicate. He makes like the little doll of him. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, just kind of through mimicry, which is a good way to kind of try to establish a connection, right? Um, I wasn't sure about, I mean, I, I was like, okay, this is like an alien spacecraft. And I thought, well, maybe everybody on board is dead, but he's going to be able to kind of use, you know, those people's research and finding or whatever to like, kind of like, I thought that was the like hint of him not being alone as he was going to be using like maybe other people's how far they've gotten to progress and to progress further. Mm -hmm. But no, <laughs> turns out. <laughs> There's um, another species out there who also needs their son, which is also being eaten by astrophage. 
And it did such a good job of writing an alien intelligence that is very similar to ours, but also very unique and alien. The, the, the idea is that, you know, Rocky is, is so much smarter than Ryland, and yet there's some things that that race has never learned because of the way that they've evolved mm. that is that is so rudimentary in comparison to earthlings right and it just it creates this very realistic world and this very realistic race that feels you know relatable but but alien at the same time right i love the you know kind of possible you know theorized origin is that um, their race started at the same time as the human race. So we have a lot of the same components and, and, you know, and like similarities in a lot of ways because we're all kind of basically made from the same stuff at the same time. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it builds on the idea, the theory of panspermia. Yes, thank you. That's the term. Uh, where where life was seeded by, the you know, life in multiple places was seeded by one um you know, by one form of life, in this case, the astrophage. Right. Um, which I, I really like. It kind of has a, a star seed sort of feel, but, you know, a little <laughs> bit less new agey. Right. Um, no, and I mean, I'm down that if there is reincarnation, that you could be reincarnated from like different planets and cultures of aliens and whatnot. I am down for that idea. And so on like some sort of a spiritual level, I love this, like, we're so different yet so the same sort of thing. Um and I, I love that Rocky is considered not smart <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, <he's- laughs> for his people, and it's like he's a genius. I mean, Ryland's a genius too. Yeah. So they find good ways to like communicate. But I mean, like so smart. Um, and we've talked about in the past too how we love a humanoid alien. We're big fans. We're big fans of aliens here on the cult show, especially me. We love a humanoid alien, but at the same time, we love a really alien alien something that is so different and we've talked about this with becky chambers books like just how they look how their bodies are um and and that we all share that intelligence and stuff but it's it's different um i i think he really nailed it on this and i cannot tell you how much my face hurt from smiling when rocky put on his finery (laughs) for the celebration He's just he's just a sweet child. I mean, he's a great, he's a brilliant adult, but you know, he's a sweet baby. He's protect him. I know. He and he's written very. He's written like an adult. Yeah. He is an adult, but you know that 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 human instinct of us of just being like, no, I I want to care for you. You're like yeah. you're like best friend. You're precious to me. When it comes to the to the technology in this book. Uh, I appreciate how it combines both, you know, real science and science experiments, as well as some real scientific advances, like with the astrophage and like with xenonite. Yeah. <laughs> do these things come, like, do these things, do, do they just come to you or are they inspired by other works or science? I mean, they come to me usually as, as you know, it, you know, so there is a plot need. I need it. So... Uh, I needed there to be an extraordinarily strong material that could be like thin, but be able to put up with an enormous amount of pressure and, um, and also, but still be thin and light. 
And um, it, it would end up needing a tensile strength well beyond anything that 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 exists in the real world. So I, I said, like, okay, well, the source of this thing is 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 alien anyway. So uh, I can go ahead and say that it's like stronger than anything that that exists on Earth. And and so I'm like, all right. So I need this thing. I calculate its tensile strength. I got all this stuff, and I'm like, okay. So there's what that stuff is, xenonite, and then. I called it xenonite. I mean, it's called xenonite because it's made in large part of xenon, which is somehow involved in molecular bonds with other atoms. And any chemist will tell you that doesn't happen. Um, xenon is a noble gas. It doesn't react with anything. And it's it's extremely non-reactive. But what I thought was I wanted to make it a little bit mysterious. And our scientist guy just, you know, has this uh, he doesn't have the ability to fully analyze what it is and he, but he does like some you know mass spectroscopy and finds out that it's predominantly xenon and he's like how does that even happen it's not it be possible <laughs> it should not be possible for that to happen and so what i was thinking of is like um in some vague way that i choose not to define <laughs> um <laughs> xenonite is the the molecules of xenonite are as strongly bound together as a that the strength of those bonds are as much as noble gases don't want to react like so the the less reactive something is somehow transforms into a stronger bond talking about the creators of xenonite talk to me about how you came up with such an alien creature and and where yeah, the inspiration they're gonna be like a big old spoiler warning yeah yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we decided about five minutes into this interview like we're this is going after the spoiler section <laughs> yeah okay well Good at least enough. parts of it parts of it yes well our hero runs into it, it finds himself in the tau city uh system uh which is about 11 or 12 light years from earth and um the reason he's there is because this astrophage stuff has infected not just our star, but all the local stars nearby, and except for Tau Ceti. Every single star within like a 20 or 30 light year radius of us or Tau Ceti or whatever are all infected with astrophage. And astronomers can see that because this, all the local stars, there's, their output is going down so they can see that those stars are dimming as well as our sun except tau city for some reason tau city is not being affected at all so this is what the hail mary is it's a desperate project to send scientists to tau city to find out why it's immune and the only way they can get to tau city is thanks to lots and lots of astrophage which they use as fuel um so the problem helps with the solution anyway our hero once he's in the tau city system almost immediately runs into an alien <laughs> an alien spacecraft an alien uh, aboard that spacecraft intelligent life aliens from the um system 40 eridani um and um from the first planet in that system, turns out it has intelligent life. Huge. And they are having the exact same problem. Yes. Their star is also infected with astrophage. They're in mortal danger. Their whole species is going to die if they don't figure out how to solve this problem. And they also notice that all the local stars are dimming except Tau Ceti. So they also send people to check it out. 
And um, so very quickly, it's uh, Ryland, who is the main character, uh, cooperating with Rocky, which is the nickname that he gives to the alien, the Iridian, as in someone from Eridani. Um, and uh, so I am, I'm sick of like, you know, oh, hey, what do you know? Alien life, totally comfortable in Earth's environment. <laughs> Looks exactly like a human, except maybe some forehead bumps. Right, right. Probably a hot chick who wants to learn more about this earth thing called lovemaking, right? <laughs> right, right. So I'm like, all right, I want to be, I want an alien to be alien. I want it. So, so Rocky or Iridians in general, I, I started off with, this is another one of those fun things where I get to start off with the, um, start with the science and work outward. Right. So I decided that um, he was going to be from, uh, 40 Eridani, and he's from uh, the planet 40 Eridani, I think B or A, whatever. It's the first planet in the system. And by the way, that is a real planet. That That is an yes. exoplanet that actually exists that we have. And so all we know about that planet in the real world, all we know about it is it's got about eight times the mass of Earth, and it's very close to uh, 40 Eridani, the star. It's got a very tight, close orbit. It orbits the star about, I think, every 42 days or something like that. So it's it's like it's similar in style to like our planet Mercury, except it's way the hell larger. It's it's like uh, eight times the mass of Earth. Okay, so I'm like, okay, we got a big planet. Now, I mean, the real planet might might be like a a gas giant or, or a small gas giant or, or something weird like that. But I decided it was a, it was a, you know, a solid planet with a liquid metal core, just like earth. And I said, okay, in order to have life evolve on a planet that close to a star, first thing you're going to need is um, a very strong magnetic field. Otherwise the star will have blasted its um, atmosphere off. Right. Mm. Um, does the sun does that? It, it has, um, it, that's why Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere. Mars had an atmosphere until its core stopped being solid, or sorry, stopped being liquid. When when a planet has a liquid metal core, a liquid iron core, um, the planet spinning around, uh, you know, so it's just its rotation during the day, the planet's spinning around in the sun's magnetic field causes a sympathetic magnetic field around the planet. That's why Earth has a magnetic field because we have a molten iron core and we're spinning. Mars has Mars is spinning just as fast as Earth, but since it's physically smaller than Earth, it finished cooling off. And so its core, it does have some liquid core, but not enough. Its core is, is not liquid. It's predominantly solid, which means it doesn't get to make a magnetic field. And once it didn't have a magnetic field anymore, the solar wind just sandblasted the atmosphere away. So that's why Mars doesn't have much of an atmosphere, and we do. Right. Right. So I decided um, the the arid E R I D, which is what I what they what he calls their homeworld, um, has to have a really strong magnetic field. Right. I mean, just an absurdly strong magnetic field to be that close to a star and still deflect all the stuff that's going to like, you know. That, that would strip away its atmosphere. So I'm like, okay, so that's an absurdly strong magnetic field. The way you do that is by spinning really fast. So I'm like, okay, the planet spins really fast. So I said, like, they've got like a six-hour day. And and since it's made predominantly of rock, it's about the same density as Earth, but it's eight times the mass, I was able to calculate, okay, well, this would be the radius, and therefore the surface gravity is about two, two and a half Gs. 
And then I'm like, also, it wouldn't have lost really any atmosphere over time, and it probably would have collected nearby atmosphere, might even be robbing um, some gases from the nearby stars. So I'm like, okay, so it's going to have a thick-ass atmosphere. <laughs> and also, it's really hot, <laughs> right? I mean, it's right next to the star. So that this is the native environment of, <clears throat> of this biosphere. So Rocky's, um, let's see. So Rocky lives, uh, you know, he, his, I mean, he's called he, but they're hermaphrodites, but, um, his native environment is like 210 degrees Celsius, which is like 450 degrees or so Fahrenheit. Um, he's like, uh, uh, 29 times earth's atmospheric pressure. Right. Um, uh, what else? Uh, he's, oh. Uh, yeah, his atmosphere is almost entirely ammonia. <laughs> oh, love that! I can just smell it too. <laughs> yeah, and also with such a thick atmosphere, um, it, their biosphere is basically like um, it, the sunlight doesn't get to the surface on on their homeworld. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way their biosphere works is their atmosphere is so thick it basically is similar to an ocean. So there is airborne life, like single-celled organisms in the upper atmosphere that absorb sunlight and like reproduce that way. And then there's life a layer down that eats that life, then a layer down below that that eats that life and so on. So at the surface, where you have the the larger uh, fauna, you know, you have predators. I mean, iridians didn't just evolve on their own. They're part of a large, complex biosphere. And the iridians are the intelligent life, and they quickly became the apex predators on their planet, just like we did. And um, there's no sunlight that reaches the surface. They never evolved eyes. They do not have a sense of sight. And Rocky, the character, is very surprised at when he finds out that humans... Do <laughs> right from Rocky's point of view. Uh, now, what they do have is really, really good hearing. They have uh, they they can they can see basically with sound um, so much so that like um, you know Rocky can fully understand his three dimensional environment just from ambient background noise, which seems ridiculous until you realize that we fully understand our three dimensional vi- environment due to ambient radiation. <laughs> I, it's 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 astounding and in the wonder the wonder that he has and that i have that they were even able to explore space without being able to see it is yeah. amazing um, yeah i love rocky um i don't want anything bad to ever happen to him i just <laughs> i just love him so much um i've been that you're not alone like i've been um there's always something that surprises me when i write a book you know in the reaction and i I, I mean, I wanted Rocky to be a likable character. He's a likable. He's a likable guy. He's a good. He's a. He's a mensch. You know, he's a good guy, right? <laughs> he's a good guy, he and is. and he's intentionally like I'm like I want I want I want you to like him. Yeah. This is actually a novel about like friendship and loyalty and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but I have been amazed at the overwhelming amount of love <laughs> that the readers have for Rocky. Yes. Well, especially, you know, when they're celebrating and he gets all dressed up in his finery. I was like, oh, stop yeah. it. You stop it. <laughs> you are. I love you so much. Um, well, well, I'm sure people ask you this all the time. But I mean, do you do you believe in intelligent life out there beyond or do you subscribe to extraterrestrials? Please say yes. Well, uh, yes, but probably not in the way that you like. Um, Bummer. (laughs) I I believe that the universe is so 
huge. Like there are so many galaxies, so many stars per galaxy, planets per star. Whatever the odds are of life, of intelligent life evolving, however small they are, that times the number of planets there are in the universe is still going to be a large number. (laughs) Yes. Like, and so I do believe that somewhere out there, and probably in lots and lots of places out there, there is intelligent alien life, as in a fully second genesis, like a, uh, like a, like, you know, life evolved from basic chemical reactions on that planet and then ultimately found its way up to being intelligent life. I do believe that that's the case. However, I also firmly believe, I'm sorry, that we will never be able to travel faster than light, nor will we ever be able to send information faster than light. The more you get into physics, the more you realize that that is a hard and fast rule. (laughs) That is... That is, it's not just the speed that photons travel, it's literally the speed that reality propagates. <laughs> it really is. It's, right. it's insane how fixated the universe is on the speed of light. So I don't believe that it's possible ever to break that barrier. So, you know, back to the the Drake equation is what it's called, where you try to work out what are the odds of intelligent life forming and then multiply it by the number of stars, planets that exist. Right. That's called the Drake equation. And um, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I just, I think that when all is said and done and when all comes to light and whatever, we'll find out that like the nearest intelligent life might be like 2 million light years away. You know, yeah. which means and it also like, lived two million years ago. Well, yeah, but <laughs> in, in other words, what it what it means is that is so. That is, by the way, my answer to the Fermi paradox. The Fermi paradox, for those listeners who don't know it, is um, if there's you know there's so many stars, so many planets. If there are so many alien species, how come we've never met any? And my answer is because you can't go faster than light. The nearest one is like too far away. Right. <laughs> yeah. Our species has not been around long enough to say hi and get a response. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Yeah. That makes for that makes it even more fun, though, to come up with the Rockies of of the yeah. world. Yeah, Iridians. Exactly. Me. I'm sorry. Rocky yes. is the person. <laughs> Rocky is my hero. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and Iridians, for those who've decided to listen to a whole bunch of massive spoilers before reading the book, uh, Iridians are basically like five-legged um, exoskeleton-like uh, spiders with their, their, their carapace is covered with mineral deposits, so they look like they're rocks, or they look kind of rocky, which hence the nickname, and um, about the size of a Labrador, so about maybe... 18 inches tall, but can stand, can get up, can get up reasonably high because they can stand on two of the legs if they want and no visible sensory organs at all. Doesn't need them. (laughs) Well, they need them. They're just not visible. They have, (laughs) they they have basically little kind of like how we have uh, uh, nerve endings all over our skin to, to know where we're being touched. Um, They have, you know, uh, audio sensing nerve endings all over their carapace. So they hear in all directions and their brain is able to untangle that information to put together a three-dimensional image of the room. Amazing. Love it. We you love have it. So- they think it's 
realizing that you know he you know he's talking to Grace and he says, "Let me get this straight. You, you can, can hear, hear light." light. <laughs> Perfect. It, and he's it, like, "Wait a minute. You can hear things that are like you can hear other stars. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can just." <laughs> like everyone can just go outside and hear all the other stars out there. <laughs> and of course the way he talks, the way we receive his communication is a little bit like the way a little kid would talk, you know, because it's kind of like missing um, sometimes nuance and also sometimes like <laughs> grammar and, and words and parts of speech. I absolutely love the way they learn to communicate with each other. I do too. That And that is my favorite part of the entire book is there's so much science is like, okay, here's the problem. And these are all the experiments that I'm going to do to figure out how to fix this. But at the, you know, after all is said and done, the real magical experience is the two of them learning to talk. Yes. And Rocky does a lot of the work. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but at the same time, you know, he's able to actually learn these chords that they, because, you know, Rocky talks in basically musical chords. Right. And he's able to recognize them almost like music and, and becomes like, almost has, almost requires perfect pitch that right. he develops and doesn't have to use this computer translator that he's used, which I want to say I love so much that he used basically Excel yeah. and a script to yeah. do it. Yeah. Genius. And it's like little, little, little fun fact about Scott over here. I love Excel. He's obsessed with Excel. it. It's actually kind of a little bit of a, it's, it's a passion. It is a passion. It's a hobby, honestly. Yeah. Yes. Which works real well as far as the work life is considered as well, because it's always fun when I get to dig in and, and make something new. I believe we've talked about it on the show before, but maybe if you haven't heard the story, um, little Scott, as a small child, probably the only child that was like, mother, for Christmas, I want Excel. <laughs> and like Excel was at that time only being used by like engineers and like, I don't know, like a lawyer or something like <laughs> nobody else was using it. And then Tiny Scott learned learned Excel and it's been a love affair ever since. Um, I love too that Rocky's very humble about his intelligence and thinking that he's not very smart. I mean, I don't love that because it makes me sad, but it, it really um, gives you a glimpse into their their culture and the way they think about things and what they value. And clearly something they value is being smart and being ingenuitive and making things and solving things. And, you know, at some point, Ryland kind of comments to some extent about it. And Rocky's like, well, we just remember things really well. And it's like, you know, that's a big part of being intelligent is just being able to recall facts and how to do things. Yeah, I mean, and that is really, you know, something that we as humans wish we had more of. And, you know, we use computers to help us with. Right. Is we want is is being able to remember everything. And, and he's really good at like remembering language as it's being given to him as well. Um I love that Rocky has kind of his own romance going on back home and not sure yeah. how that all is. Um, I love that we are shown, and I know this is going to sound heavy handed when I put it out there, but we are shown over time that Ryland did not want to sacrifice himself. He was 
kind of like kidnapped into this, you know, final <laughs> piece of it. Yeah. Um, which is understandable, but he um he was really the only person that could do this. And it's a little sad to see that reluctance. And we see how willingly Rocky went even though he had a love at home, even though he had all of this stuff. And it really makes you think about, you know, human intelligence versus other species intelligence and, you know, and the love and their hearts and stuff, because it's like Rocky is more quote unquote human (laughs) than Ryland. Right. Um, And Ryland is a good guy. He's just scared. Yeah. I I think if Ryland had really been, notified from the beginning that he may go yeah i think he would have come around to it i think he would have realized that that he is the best choice and i think that he would have sacrificed himself but you know the way that it was built where he's training these two to basically take the science officer position yeah and at the last moment is just press ganged into it is terrifying it is very terrifying and i mean the whole premise is terrifying our son is dying and um i mean it's really cool that he was trying to fix this and trying to make it right um and at the end of the day (laughs) this book is about friendship and this book is about love and it's about um doing things for others you know and and connecting to others and growing in your intelligence like your emotional intelligence and your friendship and how you love and connect to other things. Um, And, you know, Rocky does it so quickly. I mean, we think he's dead at one point. That was the worst. Twice. Yeah, twice. twice, Really twice. But, oh, my God, when I was like, no, no. I... I don't know how I would, I like, well, I mean, I know how I was handling it at the time, which was not well. well. Same. <laughs> Jinx, <laughs> but I don't, same. I don't know how I would have handled it if he did not come back. I, <sighs> I was trying to prepare myself and I was like, we need Rocky. We need him. And then, of course, the wonderful, beautiful thing is that Ryland goes after Rocky which again is what I what I mean when I say at the end of the day he did sacrifice himself. He Absolutely. had the choice of yeah. I can go home and I can live or I can save my best friend and a whole planet and and die. Yeah. Which, you know, it which is the ultimate sacrifice that Absolutely. he was being asked to do for Earth. Yeah. And I think that that also speaks a little bit to the the uber humanity that Rocky sh- Rocky shows and Rocky yeah. is, uh, Ryland didn't have that connection to the human race. No. At home, he was a scientist. And it shows in all of his excitement when it comes to learning new things. And, and teaching. Finding- exactly. He loved that. And he loved his his students. He loved his kids. Yeah. But he didn't he didn't love them enough to to die for them. But the person in his life who truly he truly cared about more than himself mm-hmm. and he he sat he chose to sacrifice himself for him now at the end of the day it's beautiful yeah. that he didn't really end up sacrificing himself at all no um and it's it's really sweet too that at Ryland's core he's a teacher yeah that's who he is and no matter where he is he will find a way to teach and also to learn 
but to teach. And so um, I want to talk about some other stuff in between, but jumping straight to the end of the book, uh, it's so beautiful that he's teaching. It's so beautiful and powerful. And, and those kids are just like human kids because all li- it's like, all living things are important. All living things are are wonderful and all different sorts of intelligence and the way you look and the way your species is, is all just, just wonderful. And there's a common humanity for lack of a better term. I don't have a better term for what that is, but this compassion and love that is humanity, I guess. Good people find good people. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you're a, if you're a human or you're an Iridian, Good people find good people. I would never have thought at the start of this book it would end with him being like kind of hobbled and crumpled and old teaching alien <laughs> children on another On a plan. keyboard. Yes. <laughs> with a keyboard. And doing the same way he did with his human kids at the start of the book. Um, I would never have thought that so many of these twists and turns were going to take place in this book. Um, I love the idea that he might go home. I think that's really sweet too. I mean, yeah. because... I think that it's more what I interpreted is he's open. He's just open now and he's open to experiences and to life. And I think that's um, a really nice message as well. And I think it'd be really nice for he and Rocky to visit earth and say, Hey, this is, this is what I saved. This is what we saved. Yes. Yeah. Cause I want Rocky to see it too. I do. Um, (laughs) I love that they like give him whatever he wants on this planet. And he's like, try not to take advantage of that. But Yeah. But I do like my me burgers. Ah, oh my god, his me burgers are horrifying. I get it. <laughs> I mean, it's the only meat that they have available that they can synthesize for him. I don't because he can't eat like their plants or anything. Like he can't like eat anything. <laughs> so for the me burger, but it is gross. But it's also just so funny. Um. So I want to talk about Strat too because that's another hugely important part of this book is um the character of Strat. what she goes through and there's a lot of this book that is ambiguous um as to what happened to strat what happened to you know how did we fix the greenhouse gas problem Mm -hmm. i how did that all work out exactly so this is the kind of ambiguity that i actually like Mm -hmm. in books because strat served her purpose to um to you know the the you know to saving humanity mm-hmm. and she served her purpose uh well yeah she served her pers- purpose for saving humanity and after that i don't i don't need a four book series explaining what happened on earth to her and all of these characters after he left i'm looking at you orson scott card you know the story was told and and i'm happy but Strat. I mean, I do care about her, so I do want to know. Um, I mean, I'm okay. I, you all know I love ambiguity, and I'm okay at the end of the day not knowing and drawing my own conclusions and just accepting it. But I am curious. I'm curious how we had to create a major problem to fix another one. Oh, that part was so difficult, and I can't remember the character's name, the French environmentalist. Who had to supervise uh firing off nuclear weapons when he cried i cried mm-hmm. i cried a couple times in this book um but that was definitely i cried i was so heartbroken and i was scared i was scared for us i was like we have to get you know 
I talk about environmental stuff a lot because that's a huge passion of mine. And that, of course, obviously is science and ties into science. And it's kind of like, would this really get through to the companies and the corporations and manufacturer and industry? Would this really be the thing to make them understand? Like, do you see we have to we have to act now? It's not about putting it off till tomorrow. And it makes me concerned. And it's like, God, I hope we I hope we did in this universe. I, I hope we did. The sad thing is that, you know, in this book, what it took was a a dictator of sorts. Yes, a, any means necessary. Any means necessary. A Thanos. My work. Yes, actually. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, she is a Thanos type, and you know the difference is 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 you as the reader believe in her cause. You're behind it one hundred percent. Yes. And the way it's presented by Strat uh, is that it's the right thing to do, as horrifying as it is. Right. On the other side, she is a villain. She is written like a villain. She behaves herself like a villain. She is, she is has absolute power and it shows. Yeah. And I find that so fascinating to 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 not only be writing an anti-hero who you're pulling for but recognize they're doing the wrong things, but to write a villain yeah. who is doing the right things. And there's plenty of people on the earth who absolutely don't agree with her and see her as the villain she is. Right. I, I find that re- like really unique in a way. Her character's morality exists in stages of gray. Um, It's not you know, to, she was basically given absolute power and authority to make the hardest decisions possible. And to, it doesn't matter what it costs of anything, as long as we can save humanity. And that is, <laughs> that's a very loaded assignment. <laughs> There's no way you're going to make everybody happy with that assignment. And that's a huge weight on her shoulders. And really, her only friend is Ryland. He's somebody that she's like close enough to her to help her and to kind of see some of her vulnerabilities a little bit, um, which I think is really interesting. I love that everyone thinks they're hooking up. I it's know. So funny. I mean, it's one of those things where it's just because it's not happening and the way just Ryland reacts to it. I think it's sad that Ryland does not see her as the the friend that, yeah. that she is. Yeah. But I also think that it's important because I think that her locking him up and, and press ganging him into the mission right. would have been incredibly destructive to him if he actually did care about her and trust her in the way that she clearly trusted him. Right. And like just people kind of telling him like, dude, you're a big deal. Like you have a lot you're of power. You're number two. You are the number two. Yeah. And and he doesn't see it that way because he was just like very hyper-focused on, on the mission and on solving and, you know, just kind of getting swept up in the whole thing. And, and not only is he serving humanity but he's trying to right the wrongs of what happened to him in his career and that's realistic that one would have a bit of a self-serving like you know what to be redeemed here like that that makes sense um i also like it when he talks to the kids really straight laced and not sugar-coated about astrophage too Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we 
we always assume that kids aren't smart and they can't handle things and to not talk to them about things. And it's like, he's not trying to traumatize the children, but it's like, you know, we see that now with COVID, with the free breather anti-mask vaccines aren't real people. And it's like, y'all, y'all, like focus here. Like believe, believe science, believe science. And um, it's so interesting, like we, we talk about with Andy, the parallels in weird ways of, you know, what goes on in this book and what's been happening, you know, with the pandemic. Yeah, the, the it, I found it really interesting in the interview, you know, knowing that this book was completed long before the pandemic started and how many, how much, how much meaning it really had because of the pandemic, this idea of everyone working, everyone in the, in the world working towards a common goal. Yeah. And the only thing that we didn't have on, you know, in the year 2020 and going in and here in 2021 is a villain calling the shots. Right. Um, I mean, I know we, we, we kind of had a villain, but not working for the right <laughs> in the right direction. And, and you have to say villain in terms of strat with a huge grain of salt, in my opinion, because I don't think that she is a villain. I don't. I mean, I think that she has to do horrible things, but she has to do them. And the thing is, is like everybody wants a fall person. Everybody wants there to be somebody who's calling the shots, who can then be the one held responsible. And it's a huge mantle that she took up knowing exactly how this was all going to play out. And, and I think that that's really brave. So I want to talk about one other thing, and, and it's one of my favorite science parts of this book. Go on. And that is astrophage. Yes. So astrophage is, I mean, doesn't exist. <laughs> it Hopefully. almost definitely doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and if it does, we certainly have never been introduced to it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like hand wavy stuff that you have to get to as far as physics is concerned for it to exist. Mm -hmm. And that's totally okay. Um, it is my favorite, uh, fictional fuel source i've i've ever come across probably mine too i don't have a large database to pull from but well i think you have you i think you have been exposed to three things that i think of when i think of fuel sources you know inside of science fiction books that don't just hand wave how they get the fuel yeah actually four now that i think about it even if you don't necessarily know how they all work you have ion engines i.e star wars yeah uh, which is a real technology totally um you have dilithium crystals a magical crystal that somehow has all this power star trek um a you know, series of books that we've recently read. You have algae, yes, which is creating the energy. Becky Chambers, uh, which is kind of a similar idea to this. And then you have this. Yeah, you have the astrophage, which is a living creature that actually produces its own thrust. Yeah, um, I think it's a really, really cool concept, and it's fun to uncover it along with Ryland and everyone else. So you feel, again, that's how you feel like you're not overwhelmed with information because we're all discovering it and learning about it together. And um, Andy does a really good job of walking us through it. Um, 
of course, Scott and I, we have a problem with we over-personify everything. <laughs> and so then, of course, that's something that we have in common with Rylan, who's then personifying the astrophage. And there's kind of like this little bit of like, I know they're really bad, but I kind of like them, <laughs> you know, like, you, I can't help it. And, but it's, um, it's interesting because, I mean, really, astrophage got to eat. That's what astrophage is doing. Because of the way that the book is written, instead of getting a chapter or two of someone, you know, of a character effectively standing in front of a whiteboard saying, this is astrophage, this is what we what it does, and Just this like is how exposition. we discover it, yeah. and here's the dangers of astrophage, you have an entire book, essentially, that's introducing you to this concept. And there are certain things that happen in science fiction books, certain terms, certain technologies that are invented by certain authors mm -hmm. that then just become part of the language of science fiction. Uh, I think of the Ansible in uh, Ender's Game and the future and the future books in the series. Um, I think of Spice, which is which which becomes kind of which is, you know, in the common language of science fiction. I think that astrophage I, I expect to see uh, science fiction in the future, maybe not using the name, but definitely using the concept mm -hmm. a lot. I think that it's a formative moment in science fiction, the idea of a of a living creature creating its own thrust that uh, that powers drives. Really, really fascinating. Super cool concept. And you just have to give it to Andy. Um, and he's so, so cool about sharing his knowledge and sharing, you know, who he learns stuff from. And I think that that's really important too, because, you know, science when it thrives is about collaboration and sharing and that's just kind of even more to the heart of the book right is people working together and you know like rocky's the most evolved planet on his i mean rocky's the most evolved species on his planet just like how humans are the most evolved species on our planet arguably <laughs> right oh you know, you're preaching to the choir. Octopuses are better. Yes, yes. You're preaching to the choir on that one, but just allow me to finish the thought. <laughs> but, um, and one of the theories of how we got that way is because we work together. And that's, um, to me, again, the heart, the spirit of this book, what makes it sing is that beings working together can accomplish so, so much more. So for that reason... I am going to give this book five astrophage out of five. Um, you know, be good, be kind to one another, be kind to other living things. I hope if we ever do find extraterrestrials or interdimensional travelers, that we work together to create um, a common good and, and a good future for us all. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. I tried. This is the stuff I think about at night. Well, I am giving this five dying stars out of five. I think that it is a wonderful, precious, uh, genius work of art. And it's very meaningful, both from a science fiction nerd like myself and uh, on an emotional level for all of the reasons that you stated. Happy birthday, Scott. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here with us. We hope that you love this book as much as we do. Go support Andy Weir. He's a good egg. And please keep reading past your bedtime. Mm -hmm.